Welcome to episode 164 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. It all started innocently enough. My wife suggested that I go for a run with her while we were on vacation since I'd been regularly doing the elliptical at the gym. That was at the beginning of July. At the end of August, I ran my first 5K while pushing a double stroller. I got the stroller that my wife had been pushing during our training runs because I had hurt myself and needed to go a little slower. Still, I finished. I never envisioned myself being a runner and had a ton of excuses for why I couldn't be a runner. So imagine my discomfort when I look at my running app a couple weeks ago and realize I had run five times a week for two weeks in a row. And then as I was getting ready to go to a conference in Toronto, I saw a post from an attendee suggesting that folks get together to run one morning. I found myself replying to the thread, admitting I was new to all this and not super fast, but willing to join them. In fact, the first thing I looked for as I started packing for this trip was my running gear. Fancy running shoes, dry fit shirt, knee brace, check, check, check. Reading this, I don't recognize myself in these words. I had told myself a story for so long that even now, as I rewrite the ending, I am having a hard time believing it's true. I worry that something small, something minor will happen and I'll get derailed from this new adventure. I have to remind myself that that actually already happened. When I sprained my LCL and instead of taking the easy way out, I kept moving forward, literally. This is not the first major life change I've made. A diehard caffeine addict, I quit caffeine cold turkey nearly a decade ago when I realized it was becoming hazardous to my health. After hating seltzer my entire life, I started drinking it a year and a half ago and now consume two liters a day of homemade seltzer with fresh lime. Add to this list of unexpected life changes. I started running two months ago, and I'm on the hunt for my third 5K since August. Your challenge for this week, what story are you telling yourself that isn't congruent with what you know to be your new reality? What evidence do you have that you're no longer the person in that old story? Stop living life with limitations built on these old stories. Declare the new you without reservation. Try this and let me know how it goes. Now, onto this week's show. Today's guest has been talking about social business before it even had a name and views social media as an excellent way to tear down silos, build strong communities, and connect people face-to-face. He's the founder of a digital strategy agency called From the Future. As a recognized expert strategist, he helps his clients see frameworks rather than supplying them with templates, scripts, and tactics. He engages audiences as a keynote speaker, cutting through BS and not pulling punches. Everything he talks about puts an intense focus on business applications designed to ensure that everyone wins. He's also the host of Shareable, a popular podcast about people and technology. He explores the pivotal moments in people's lives where a person or technology had a profound impact on them, forever shifting the direction of their career and life. His forthcoming book, which discusses his lovable leader framework, is called the lovable leader. Please join me in welcoming Jeff Gibbard. And the crowd goes wild. Thank you for having me, Robbie. 
<laughs> Jeff, thanks so much for joining us from your office in Philly, Pennsylvania. Um, so it's a real pleasure to have you on here. And I want to thank you because I was a guest on your show, which just came out a couple of months back. So I'm happy to return the favor and share your brilliance with my audience as well. So you know, this is a show about building amazing networks and the context of the conversation is, is leadership. So tell me, Jeff, how do you define leadership and when did you realize you had the skills to lead? So when I think about leadership, I'm often, um, I find myself kind of going down two different paths. So leadership to me at its very basic is just the ability for someone to follow you, right? You are a leader in so much as somebody is willing to follow you somewhere. It's an amoral kind of framework. It doesn't matter if you're going somewhere good, somewhere bad, it's irrelevant. You are a leader if you can have somebody follow you. So that's the, the core definition, right? But then there's the, the next levels up of like, what, it, what makes a great leader? What makes an outstanding leader? What makes an aspirational leader? There's all of these sort of different categories and philosophies of leadership, mine being lovable leadership. Um, you know, what defines leadership to me is about how you see yourself in the context of the people that you work with. It's how you view your role. I'm a big fan of the whole Simon Sinek, leaders eat last kind of mentality. Servant leadership um, is, a big, uh, is a big kind of buzzword for me. Um, but that's kind of how I see it, I guess. That's really cool. And I appreciate you bringing in the amoral factor because I don't think it's really been mentioned in this show very much because we, of course, are usually talking about leadership as this like wonderful thing that we should all aspire to be, but it doesn't really say to what purpose. So hopefully it's always for a good purpose <laughs> that we're all striving to be great leaders. So thank you for bringing that part in. And uh, how did you, st- I, I'm so curious about this lovable leader piece. And I, I am, I like that you talked about servant leadership because I, I, when I heard that like phrase and learned what it was the first time, I was like, ah, there's language for what I believe. Like, it just was so good to know that there was a community around that. So how do you take that concept and then build on it? Um, for me, I, I think my starting point with how I think about all of these things is I've just always tried to build the leadership framework that is the exact opposite of everything that I hated in bad bosses and bad work environments. And that I think feeds the human spirit, right? Like I I think we spend so much of our time at work. Why should we hate it? Um, I remember my dad when I was a kid, my dad was a funeral director. So, you know, he used to wake up at 5am, drive an hour into work and all day he was just around dead people. And when I was aspiring to do different things as a child, he was always very supportive of it. And he was like, listen, find something you love to do so you never work a day in your life. So that's kind of been my motivation is who I am as a human. So as I've ventured into different roles and I've, I've had leaders and I've grown into become a leader, um, what I've just tried to really do is take notes along the way of everything that I thought, yeah, that really worked. That made me feel empowered. That made me feel important. That made me feel special. It made me feel like I want to work hard versus the things that shut me down. Now, realizing, of course, everybody's different, right? I'm an only child. I grew up in a particular environment, two-parent household, um, well, well, two separate parent households, parents divorced. But so like my upbringing made me a certain type of person. And what I've tried to do as a leader is my, my big goal is to understand and be able to provide a work environment for people, regardless of what their background was, being able to understand and appreciate and empathize with their situation and create a workplace that's inclusive of all of those sort of ideas and backgrounds and, and ways of working. So you talked a little bit about the, the bad examples that you had to live under when you had people who were, who were not great bosses. Uh, who initially inspired you to, to think, well, there's got to be a different way. I see this person doing it differently. Was there, was there a moment when you thought, huh, this doesn't have to be the way I thought 
that it's been? I mean, candidly, I am the world's worst employee. I am entrepreneur every bit of my bones. So I've never really had too, too many people that have been my leaders that I've been able to last under for a particularly long time just because I have this burning desire to always go out and carve my own path. But what I will say, and I write about this in the the intro to my book, is that I really look to my parents as being really interesting examples of different styles of leadership. And I model so much of my lovable leader uh, framework off of my father because he was very much of the mindset of, um, and it's not entirely based on him, but one of the big things that I was admired about him was that he told me, here's what the rules are. And so long as I kind of stayed within those rules, everything was like paradise, man. It was like so hunky-dory. We were best friends. We got along. Everything was really great. And if I stepped out of it, he very uh, directly would let me know that like I was out of bounds. And I always found that I really respected, even when he course corrected for me, I respected it. And, um, you know, obviously kids and parents, like there's always going to be, uh, you know, um, exceptions to that rule. But, but I really looked at that and said, you know, that's an example of if I think about what a good work environment might look like, it'd be one in where I, you know, the person who's, you know, underneath the leader, so to speak, or that's within the leader's uh, care feels taken care of. They feel appreciated. They feel encouraged and they feel free to be able to be who they are and pursue the things that they're interested in while still understanding that 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 leader that they're under is providing some sort of framework and guidance and discipline. First, I have to underscore the phrase within the leader's care, because that in itself is a a framework or a viewpoint way of looking at this that a lot of people wouldn't have thought to say within the leader's care. That's just really kind of cool to think about like that that they're in your charge. That's why you're there to, to help them, not just help yourself. I'm curious about what you were like, Jeff, when you, if we really like rolled back the clock and we went back to like college, to high school, to even grade school, to the playground, like what kind of kid were you? Were you like really, I mean, you, you, you have this entrepreneurship, like, you know, as all parts of your being, were you like that as a kid selling things to other kids? I mean, that was me <laughs> selling, selling things to other people. Like, you know, did you ever have an official office title? Were you the captain of a sports team? Like, or did you sort of sit back and let everyone else handle that while you did your own thing? It, it's interesting, man. I really am. Uh, I'm, I'm struggling to come up with a way of defining it. But I mean, I was entrepreneurial. I always tried to like, I wanted to set up lemonade stands. A funny example is that like, we had this big winter in um, uh, out, out on uh, Long Island, out in Center Riches, where my dad was. And we had all this snow. And my stepbrothers and I had this idea that we were going to essentially cover the front lawn in water and turn it into an ice skating rink and charge admission. So there we are. It's like 6 or 7 a.m. We're filling up the buckets with hot water because hot water apparently freezes faster and smoother over. At least that's what I believed at the time. I think it's true. I don't know. Not into, not into science as much anymore. But we were basically draining the hot water heater, uh, covering the front of the entire lawn in water, we had a pretty big front lawn with the intention of ice skating around it. So that was an idea I had. And as an example of like kind of who I was as a kid, you know, lemonade stands or selling baseball cards or whatever it was, like I was always into the idea of selling something. But I guess being an only child and having stepbrothers and things like that, um, just being an only child for so much of my early childhood, I really was very much like a class clown, center of attention pay attention to me, give me, uh, give me accolades and adoration for my, my witty personality. Um, 
So that's kind of who I was. And as far as like the entrepreneurial side of it, I think it was just that came out mostly in the inability to have a boss or an authority figure, which again, kind of comes down from my dad. He was never very good with authority. So that kind of permeated me and it's carried my whole life. I've just never been good with, uh, with authority or anybody telling me no. It's funny you describing yourself uh, in this charismatic, uh, playful way as a child. It's amazing how far you've come, Jeff. Really, like <laughs> yeah, I'm, I've really left that charisma in the, in the dark. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm going past now. This it's really interesting to hear you talk about that. I actually um, I had a lot of different entrepreneurial ventures. My my cousin lived with us for a short while when I was in high school, and I started around that time. I was selling bagel sandwiches. <laughs> I was taking orders uh, and then making the food at night and then bringing it the next day to breakfast. And my cousin got my uh, my very first business card. Um, it was called Bagels Plus Was because I was serving bagels with whatever I, people wanted on them. Bagels, that's brilliant. And isn't it funny how far I've come? <laughs> yeah, ties it all together. That's amazing. And I'm also from Long Island. So it was exactly that setting. Um, so it's really, it's really interesting to think about. And, and then I, I ventured off into nonprofit and then found my way after many years uh, back into the world of entrepreneurship. Although I kept starting like social ventures on the side, not to make money, just to, to do good in the world. What was your career trajectory like? Like you said, you, you sort of, I, the term unemployable comes to mind as in like, I can't have a boss. It's a yeah. badge of honor, right? So, but what, what were you attempting to fit your square peg round hole into, you know? So my friend coined a term, I don't know if it's hers, but she calls it psychologically unemployable, which I think is just hilarious because it, it really speaks to the fact that it is like a mental defect to, in it, to have the inability to be employed by someone else. Um, I think my whole thing just came down to like autonomy and freedom. Like I always wanted to be able to carve out my own path and find greatness in a way where whatever the accomplishment or the failure, I got to own the whole thing. So for me, I never wanted somebody to be able to usurp my efforts and claim ownership over that victory. And I never wanted somebody else. I never wanted any of my failures to be something that I could, um, you know, justify away by saying it was somebody else's fault. Like I love the ownership and carrying the whole thing on my back. Uh, and I don't know where that comes from. I probably should spend some time with my therapist about that. But like the whole like putting putting the whole team on my back sort of thing and like carrying the whole load for everybody, um, that's very much a part of who my personality has always been. My career journey was really nonlinear. Uh, I mean, at 13, I wanted to be a professional basketball player. Uh, I really believed with every fiber of my being that I would be the starting point guard for the Knicks. Then I uh, went to school uh, for film and media arts. I wanted to be a famous director, a la Stanley Kubrick, Alfred Hitchcock, Martin Scorsese, that level, nothing less. When that didn't work out, I wanted to uh, take pictures of half-naked women around the world for like Sports Illustrated and Maxim because I was in my early 20s and that sounded like an awesome job. But I, in all of these, I wanted to basically be so good or I wanted to have... Um, I just wanted to be so well-respected that I could really carve my own path and do whatever I wanted. So really, it always came down to that. Um, and then a bunch of other things happened. I started a personal chef service. I went back to school, got my MBA, came out, and that's when I started in uh, social media. And, and you started in social media as it became a thing, too. It's like the yeah, timing. Right at the beginning. It was kind yeah. of wacky timing because you know I was kind of lost in my you know, late 20s, I would say. like you know I had been working in restaurants, and I had started a personal chef service. And Personal chef service, despite my love of cooking, you know, it was too early. There wasn't like an internet to support it the same way there is now with apps and things. But 
um, they didn't really know what I was doing. So I was, I was kind of like, who am I? What do, what do I do anymore? Because I'm not the famous director. I'm not star of the, the Knicks. You know, what do I do? So I went back and when I got my MBA, it just so happened that I was coming out as Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn were all kind of becoming more um, you know, coffee table conversation. They became real. It was 2008 when I graduated and I had been a big fan of MySpace and Friendster, always been on AOL Instant Messenger and all that sort of stuff when I was younger. So I was always a, a kind of a tech kid. So when this happened, you know, in my MBA, I was totally alone. I'm not a finance guy. I'm not an accounting guy, not economics. So everybody else there is calculating net present value and talking about how, you know, they would sell the assets of the company and depreciate. And I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. But I could talk in front of people and I understood people and networks and marketing and, and just being creative. All those sort of things came together. And when social media came out, it was this perfect kind of convergence of all of my interests in one thing. And at that time, I really believed it was going to be, I just believed so naively that it was going to be this world-changing force only for good. I did not see any of the potential negative consequences of it to this degree that I think we're currently witnessing. Oh, I yeah. The, the degree to which we're here is like a back to the future level yeah. bad. <laughs> I mean, yeah, we're been, like in the, we're in the bad timeline right now. We're in the bad timeline right now. Yeah. I've been thinking that for a long time, actually. Yeah. I, I'm uh, curious about the timing, actually, of this because you said 2008, and and this year actually comes up a lot on this show. I've met a lot of people that you know were celebrating their 10 years of being in business, often because they got laid off in 2007, 2008, 2009 time period. You graduated with an MBA. And to you, it sounds like that was a perfect time because all these new technologies were happening. And like, this was a great playground to like figure out what you want to do next. What was the challenge of emerging with this new degree and this new interest in this like worst, you know, downturn of the economy that we've experienced in a long time, in our lifetime. I experienced it so differently. Like to yeah. me, I, I know all that stuff was happening, but it was almost like I was operating inside of a bubble where that did not exist. So I didn't have assets that I was worried about losing. So that was, unbe- I didn't have a house. I didn't have a mortgage. Like none of that stuff was real to me. And then as far as like the rest of the economy crashing, you know, I got a job fairly easily coming out of my MBA. And here's the crazy part. I only had like two or three interviews like of different places. I picked one place. I was like, that works. And I went there and it was a great experience for me. Uh, I went to a management consulting firm called Gap International and they specialize in a particular brand of consulting where they work with leaders. And at the time, like it's so funny because I, I at that point in my life, leadership was not a thing that I was thinking about. Um, leading people, working with people, sales, like none of that was on my radar. I just didn't want to be a, a bartender anymore. So, um, so I worked at this management consulting firm. I learned a tremendous amount there. I met one of my best friends and I was specializing in interactive digital marketing. And then from there, I went to a PR firm and then I got laid off and then I started my own thing. So that's kind of how what the process looked like. But in terms of my experience of that time in, in our history, it was very different, I think, than a lot of people who had something to lose. I had nothing to lose. And all I did was gain over that time. My salary went up, my knowledge went up, my, the amount of people I knew went up, the, number, the amount of respect I was able to command went up. Like Everything was on the up and up for me. So my, my looking back at that time was, I just happened to be in the right place at the right time with the right mindset. Uh, in the mindset, I was going to say that mindset really comes in and you also were open to new challenges. I mean, you're sort of living proof that 
a lot of the jobs that we will excel at don't exist yet. That that sort of added, right? Like, you know, you you literally have excelled at something that when you started even just your MBA, which was only a few years before 2008, didn't exist and it became what you were known for. Um, and and then what what was the challenge as you went from okay, I'm doing this, you know, for another company, uh, specializing, but you know, they're giving me a paycheck. I know the whole like psychologically unemployable, but it's still nice to get healthcare and paychecks and to know all, all those things are happening. When you were like, okay, I've been laid off in this PR company, I'm gonna do my own thing. What was the, I don't know if it's a stumbling block, the the challenge, men, the mental like thing you had to get past, or was it something that you just you need other people on your team because you're like, that's not my thing. I want someone else to handle that. Like, what was this big, like, uh-oh, I better figure this out as you're making it your own? It was such an interesting time because, um, and, and I bet if you had asked me, if we could like go in a time machine and talk to me in March, 2011, like what's going on, what's in your mind, it'd probably be a lot different. I remember being very upset as I was laid off, like, you know, all my stuff on my lap in a box and a cab on the way home. I was on the phone with my ex-wife. Uh, she was my wife at the time you know, telling her like, I don't know what I'm going to do next. I'm, I'm on my way home. I've got all my stuff. I just got laid off. So I give a lot of credit to my ex-wife because in that moment, um, when I came back and I was talking about like, you know, what should I do looking for jobs? She said, maybe it's time you start your company. And it was like, it was almost like an offhanded comment, like a thing, like as part of the discussion. And I hadn't really considered. And I said, you know what, maybe not. Let, let, let's look at that. So we went out for brunch that weekend, came up with a name, website was available, True Voice Media bought all the things, started the very next day, that Monday. And I got to tell you that the difference between the two previous jobs, which is about three years, where I was working there and I was getting a paycheck and that was nice. The level of satisfaction on my very first day working for myself exceeded the best day that I ever had working for anybody in those previous three years. And it was because I didn't any longer feel like I had anybody who could hold me back. And that was the big challenge that I felt at both of the companies is that I wanted to do things. I wanted to advance the ball and I had to play politics and I'm not particularly good at that. So when I got to start my own company, even though I was dead broke, you know, I, I wasn't making any money the first year. Thankfully, my, my ex-wife like supported me through that whole process. The next year I made more money, but like I was struggling every year. And, and even up until when I sold my company um, last year, like it wasn't like I was rolling in dough, like I wasn't killing it. But I was happy because I got to call my own shots. I get to build my own team. I got to decide what we did and didn't do as far as work. It, there was just so many benefits to it. And I, I appreciate that struggle. Um, I, I find that I always do my best work when I feel like my back is against the wall or I'm being chased by wolves. Like That's me at my best. I am not a peacetime president. I am a wartime president. That's how I roll. Yeah. yeah. And it sounds like you had the right support systems in place at the time to give you the space to like grow it as you needed it. And you didn't get ahead of it, even though you were from the future. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. couldn't resist. <laughs> no, that's I mean, that's why we have the name of the company. It's just, it works in so many contexts. It works in so many contexts. Um, and now people are not going to forget it. They're going to go look up from the future because it's, it's a really cool name for anything, particularly for an agency. So, yeah. um, you know, we've sort of, dance around the topic of, of networks a little bit, which is we were talking about how, you know, you in even getting your MBA, you realize like your skill set was more in marketing and, and, and having networks and having connections and relations with people, less the like wonky stuff that they were all into. 
And you've had, it sounds like a very varied and interesting um, career trajectory as broken as that road has been. It makes some sense, I'm sure, in hindsight. How have you nurtured and sustained connection to not the like inner circle, not those like people who are always up your back, but like the second and third sort of layers out, the people you might see annually at a conference or you, you, you know them online, but you don't see them very often in person or you work with them five years ago, but you don't currently have any need to. Like what, what is the philosophy or the habit around staying sort of top of mind with those kinds of folks? My, everything for me in terms of building my network um, pretty much starts and ends at generosity. Um, and I want to be very careful about how I talk about this because it could sound like a tactic. It could sound like, you know, this is a, a strategy and I'm using it for nefarious and manipulative uh, means. But I think it's more like you could look at it that way, but it's a byproduct. I look at it this way. I am stashing social capital at all times. I am looking to have the biggest wealth of social capital of anyone that I know. So if I need something, I know I can cash in some of that social capital, but I'm just building it as much as possible. So as I meet people, I am never, it, to a fault, never um, at figuring out what benefit I get from it. Instead, when I meet someone, if I meet someone that's a secondary connection or I meet someone, that, I'm just trying to figure out who can I introduce them to? How can I make their life better? How can I make them smile because they met somebody who actually did something nice for them? And if that's all I do, at least I get the satisfaction of that. But I also know that by making these connections, they're going to want to make connections for me. I know that if I'm going to make those connections and I keep doing it later on, they're going to want to come back when I have an ask or something that I'm working on where I need the support. So for me, I feel like a network is really about creating as strong ties as you can across your entire network to create stability and security. Um, because otherwise, if you're just you know a person going it alone, you're going to have a really difficult time in just about any area of your life. And for me, I've always found... I, you know, I grew up with a very small family. So for me, I go about in many ways trying to develop and build my own family, uh, um, you know, amongst humans by just building and expanding my network of people that like me and that I like. And um, I love that it starts and ends with abundance. And, and what you're just saying makes me think a lot of Jordan Harbinger. I interviewed him soon after he started the Jordan Harbinger show after 11 years of running a different show, Art of Charm. And you know, he, he was talking, his episode 94, he was talking about how it's, it really was an insurance policy that he had been investing in for all those years, but he had never thought he would ever need to cash in and ask for a favor. Like, he, ne- he never thought that. Like, it just wasn't why he was doing it. And then suddenly, his life implodes. And thankfully, he had that insurance policy. Like, literally, all these people wanted to help him. And he actually came out of that way stronger like he was up and running and like getting millions of downloads within like an, a month i mean he just sort of like hit the ground running and i i that's how i've been thinking about it too now it's like you never buy insurance thinking i can't wait to use this <laughs> you know like you're like you know you buy it thinking you, it. you have it when your house is on fire yeah you're like i hope i never i never have to use it and yet if it's there you need it right so um so yeah, the abundance is the way that the social capital is the way that you build that insurance policy. But what are the specifics? I want to get a little down. That was a yeah, sure. great philosophical answer. And I really do appreciate the context. But like, do, like you know, it sounds like you're big into making introductions, I'm guessing, because like that's a way to add value. Yeah, that, that's what, a pretty good starting point. Yeah. So what, what are the kinds of things you do? 
So when I meet people, I mean, the first thing that I try to do is, is, um, I guess let me first give you the high level of is that, you know, my, my, when I meet someone, my thing I'm trying to establish is, is this going to go somewhere? So the, it's kind of like dating to a certain extent, you know, the first date is me saying, Hey, let me offer to make an introduction for you. Why don't you send me some info about who you are? Tell me who you're looking to meet, what you're trying to accomplish. And I try and do something for them. Then maybe I'll follow up like on the second time around and I'll say, Hey, here's something I did. I think you might find valuable. So again, even though I'm giving them something of mine that I want them to read kind of selfishly, it is something that I've created with the intention of being valuable for somebody else. And then let's say I haven't heard back from them on those two. I might send on a third communication. I might be like, hey, you know, we all meet people in life and sometimes we're going to keep in touch. Sometimes we don't. You know, I want to know where this is going. Would you be down for getting coffee and seeing if there is, you know, a value in us staying connected, even if it's just as friends or whatever it might be. So for me, I guess I, I even though I'm formalized about my processes, for me, the... Um, the engagement with another person is very no, there's no frills. There's no like hassles about it. It's just, I want to see where this is going. What are, it's up to you. It, whatever we feel like doing with it, that's kind of how I approach it. And again, it's about if, and I only do this with people where if in my initial introduction to them, my initial interactions with them, I sense this is someone I like. I'm willing to, you know, keep in touch with this person. They don't seem selfish. They don't seem rude. They don't have views that are, you know, diametrically opposed to what I think is being a good human all those sort of things, then then we'll kind of go down that path of the process. I have to say that is um, the most specific I've heard someone talk about the nurturing sequence of getting to know someone down to the fact that you're like, hey, listen, sometimes you meet people and you click and you have a great connection and other times it doesn't really go anywhere. Where are we going? <laughs> like, and, and I mean, the fourth piece of it too, when I don't hear back from that one, I send them a multiple choice email. This is one of my, it's great in sales too. I don't know if you use this or not, but so I'll send them an email. I'll be like, Hey, this will only take two minutes. That's like the subject line. And then it says, Hey, we met a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we met at this networking event, blah, 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 blah. Uh, I just want to get a sense of, of where we stand in this relationship. I've sent you three emails. F- just send back an email, just a reply with one of these four multiple choices. And A, it'll be like, Hey, Jeff, so sorry. I've been busy or out of whatever, and I haven't had a chance, but I'll get back to you. I promise. Thanks for following up. B will be like, Hey, uh, I actually uh, am not super interested in staying in touch with you, but I appreciate the offer. No hard feelings. C will be like, uh, Who are you again? And D is like, Dude, seriously, take the hint. I can't stand you. So I'll usually put in some sort of like humorous, um, multiple choices in there. But the response rate on that, I know you and I both use Contactually. Um, I'm about to cancel my account. I know that you, uh, you you no longer use them, but it shows you the percentage of like response rate and things. The response rate I've gotten from the multiple choice is somewhere between 73 and 83% because I've run split tests on them. So usually it's, it's somewhere above 70% of people get back to the multiple choice because I think they just feel like jerks for, for not Actually, <laughs> and after that, you really do take the hint if they don't reply. Yeah, I mean, like, I'm not going to chase anybody to be my friend. Look, if you don't want to hang out with me, that's your loss. Yeah, and 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 so clearly, coffee could be also virtual coffee because you're probably mm-hmm. meeting people at a conference. You travel home, so do you prioritize when you're following up? Let's say you're at a conference, you meet like all these people. You, you go home with a stack of business cards. Do, do you have a way of filtering out ones that you're like these three or four people? I had a, such a great conversation. I want to have a, have a particular ask where all these other people, I'm going to send them sort of that, you know, initial, hey, you know, whatever that initial message is. Yeah. Do, 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 or do you, or does everyone get the like initial message? 
I, I would say about 85 to 90% of people get like kind of the standard sequence because that's my way of feeling out what's happening. And, and I personalize each of the messages, not like they're strictly out of a CRM and they just go out automatically. So I'll always put a little bit of colorful, you know, commentary in there to make sure that there's, um, you know, it feels human and connected. But um, that, that whole sequence is really determined to see like who's going to actually write back. And if somebody writes back to the first one, usually I, I won't even do the rest of the sequence. So that's really just more to see if they'll, if they'll um, you know, be interested. But then there's that kind of like outlier 10%. And those are the people, I mean, aside from the ones where I throw away the business card because no interest, but of the people I do follow up with that are in that 10%, they're usually people where I'm like, wow, this person was amazing. We had a really deep conversation at this event or whatever it is. And I'm just going to send them like a strictly straight from the heart email or text message and be like, we're getting drinks. You know, like, and it's funny because um, I actually didn't even realize this until... Uh, we're talking this through, I'm talking it out loud, but I've realized that when in, somebody's in that 10% where they're somebody that I really want, I actually don't even give them a, a choice to a certain extent about whether or not we're going to be friends. Like I will write to them something along the lines of, just so you know, we're best friends now and we're going to go out and get drinks or coffee, your call, tell me when I'm available these days. So like, I'm not even saying like, are you, I'm saying I'm so interested in getting to know you. I so want to know more about you and how we can work together that I'm not even giving you a choice. We're going to be friends. I'm curious if you've ever done that where you've met someone on like a Friday of a conference, sent them a note Friday night and like made plans to meet up again that weekend. Yeah. Well, at conferences, definitely. Like anytime I've been at a conference, you know, I'm usually... Most of the conferences I've ever attended, I've been there as a speaker. And, um, you know, we do like the, the speaker dinners with the, with the attendees or speakers with other speakers. And oftentimes, you know, it's over the course of like a two or three day thing. So usually right then and there, I'm, I'm nurturing that relationship. If it's somebody that I think I want to keep in touch with this person, you know, strike while the iron's hot. You don't, you don't get that chance back later on to like have those experiences. And, um, and, and I think a lot of my, um, I guess what, what stops me from getting stuck in those moments, like being afraid to ask the girl to dance sort of situation is that I think I have leftover stuff from high school of not asking the girl out or not, um, you know, or, or missing those opportunities and looking back with regret on them. And I think at a certain point, I said, I'm just not going to do that anymore. If there's somebody that I want to talk to, if there's somebody that I want to try and build a relationship with, I'm going to just take the initiative. Um, and, and actually, that's another part of my philosophy of things. And this, this is networking, this is leadership. I take 100% accountability for relationships. So if there's somebody that I want to be uh, that I want to know better, I'm going to take responsibility for the idea that we're going to get coffee, we're going to talk, we're going to do whatever. I'll be that one to do it. I won't expect anything from them. And I'll follow up until they basically tell me to either leave them alone or I get the sense that they're not interested. You know, in my book, I talk about um, you have three seconds to hesitate. So if you're about to like walk over to someone and you like get into your head about it, you, you get three seconds and then you just got to go do it. Because if you, if you pause more than three seconds, you're just probably not going to do it. Like, yeah. and that's for any, anything, any, you know, asking someone to walk over to someone you don't know, whatever it is, you get three seconds to like go ah, in your head. And then you're like, okay, I'm going to do it. <laughs> it's like yourself up. Um, what are the ways let's like, how do you nurture after that? Like, let's, you know, so you and I met online. I'm, I'm sort of almost going to ask this meta question about me. Yeah. Um, so you and I met online through a really awesome Facebook group. Um, I saw that you were like open to getting pitches about being on your show. And I was like, that sounds like a really cool show. I listened to it. I was like, that's, that's a good show. And I hope I gave a five-star review. That was my plan. 
I'm going to go double yeah, check. I think you did. I think I did because that's what you do. You like listen, yeah. you do a five-star review. Because if you can't give a five-star review, then why are you bothering to pitch yourself? It's always my philosophy. That's fair. Um, so I, I, I filled out your form and was like, hey, you really don't know me, but this is how I found out. And you're like, yeah, great. You booked. We had a great conversation. I immediately was like, I want you on my show. What's next? Like how, like I'm, I'm game. I want to be your friend. Yeah. Like, how do you do this though in the long run? Cause you, I'm not going to buy from you and you're not going to buy from me. I, I you know, we, we don't have that kind of relationship. So I mean, I'm probably going to pick up your book to be honest, but, but aside from that, I, you know, and, and I hope when my book comes out, you'll pick up a copy too. Happily um, review it. Aside from that, like, yeah, no, I, I, I get the question. I, I think the answer is I, I don't always know. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty good at this, but like at the same time, I'm also figuring the stuff out as I go along. And um, one of the things that I've done recently that I think is a, a, a massive, um, it's made me feel so much more light and free and, and kind of calm in my life is that I did a lot of social media purging. You know, I, I think over the course of a decade, I've gone through different strategies of, of growing my network and growing my audience and being open about who I accept in and then being kind of more closed off. Determined. And I've gotten to a point where I was like, you know what, I really when I go on these networks, I don't have time to see stuff of people that I'm not interested in. And I don't have time to deal with the people who bring negativity into my space. So basically what I've done is I've gone through and I've culled down to a, to only people that I want to talk to. That's it. Like there, there are not things in virtually any of my feeds of people that I do not want to hear from, don't want to know what's going on with them, don't want to interact with. And this is especially true on, on Facebook and on Twitter. Uh, LinkedIn, I still have to do some culling. But you know, so for, for, for us, for instance, you know, you're on the, the very narrowly defined feed of people that I want to keep in touch with on Twitter and on Facebook. And we're also both part of, uh, you know, our, our group that we're both part of. Um, so I see that as being one thing. The other thing is that I keep a list of people that, um, that I want to keep in touch with at regular intervals. So one of the things that I liked about Contactually when I was using it uh, more regularly is that I kept multiple different groupings of people and windows of time that I wanted to make sure I kept in touch. So like, for instance, you and I are, you know, we're geographically disparate. We don't have overlap uh, professionally. We're probably not going to get together for drinks too often, but I will know that, you know, you're in Boston, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if I was coming to Boston, I would come and, you know, be like, Robbie, what's up? Let's grab drinks, grab coffee, whatever. And at the same time, I would also keep in touch with you at, at the probably like 90 day interval, I'd say, of where I keep in touch with people that are geographically disparate, who I won't get to see, but I want to keep in touch with and I want to know what's happening with them. And usually the, the longest I'll let it go with somebody in that kind of circle will be six months. That's generally the longest I'll go because after that, relationships just go stale. I wonder to myself, do these people even remember who I am? Do they remember my name? Would they recognize me? Um, so that's kind of how I go about doing it. Um, really, really tightly defined social networks and then just direct one-to-one -one outreach. One of my favorite techniques, honestly, is like, I just send people texts like, yo, what up? <laughs> like very simple, very short, or like an emoji. One of my favorite ones, and this comes from one of my best friends, but he will sometimes just send a message to someone and it's just their name with the exclamation point. So I would just send you a text. It's like, Robbie, and that's it. <laughs> and so what you come back with, and I'd be like, what's up, man? It's a good long time. How's it going? That's actually really funny because it's the sweetest sound in any language, right? Like there's that quote. So it's your, your own it's your mother's voice from what I've heard. That's <laughs> somebody's mother's voice. So um, I love all this. And, and I'm curious about the, uh, the CRM piece because you, you touched on that. You and I are both huge advocates of Contactually. Um, I 
I talked about it so much my first year of my podcast a couple of years ago. People thought that they were a sponsor. Oh, <laughs> wow. Then, yeah. And then um, he actually came on, the, the, the founder came on the oh, show. Oh, Zvi? Yeah, Zvi. Yes, Bam- I had Zvi on uh, Shareable also. Yeah, so good guy. And then he sold it. And yeah. um, it just it was right before that, actually, that I realized that I wasn't making full use of it. Um, the people I put in were no longer the people I was trying to track. I, I needed I needed to almost start start over, and it just it it had morphed away from where I needed it to be. So, are you using systems like technology now to track, or is it like a list, literally a paper and pen list that you like look at each day? I mean, John Corcoran's got his like fifty conversations list, and he has his planner, and every day he writes one person down from that list, and that's who he talks to. I mean, yeah. like, that's a nice, simple. You know, I think index cards could work if you. You know, talk to someone on the top index card, you put them on the back of the pile, and then you see who's in the front of the pile. What are you doing, Jeff, to keep track of these disparately distance, geographically, whatever people you were talking about? Yeah, so I'm in between systems at the moment. I mean, I'm, I'm still technically on contactually. Um, by the time of the airing of this episode, I may not be. But I mean, from what I've understood, they're going to keep the system as it is, and my company does pay for my license. So, you know, it's not like it's it's you know, impacting me financially personally. So I might continue using it, but um, I haven't found any system that has as good of a kind of follow-up window uh, sort of thing as Contactually. We use um, Pipedrive uh, at my agency for our CRM. And um, before we jumped on, I was telling you about a, a program that I'm using now called Notion. And Notion is extremely flexible. You can do so much with it. It doesn't integrate with like Gmail and different things like that to track your communications. But it could be used as a very manual CRM. One thing I do know is it will not be a manual, like physical off computer, off digital system because that is just a recipe for failure for me. I, I do not keep track of paper well. I do not keep track of things in the real world particularly well, but I'm super digitally organized. So it'll probably be some sort of a digital system. Um, the, the tough part for me is often categorizing because I'm a big organizer. Like I love tagging things and putting things in neat little boxes. And people are just such, they're not well suited for boxes. The, yeah. it, it's the hardest part about managing relationships for me because I'll think, well, what, what category, what playlist, what list of people does this person belong in? And then I realize they belong in like five of them. And it depends upon you know, the, the day of the week or the, the recency of the interaction, which group they actually belong in. And it's just so frustrating. So I a hundred percent concur on that, which is what had made my CRM so unwieldy <laughs> is that I, you know, people, and then you got to like, con, you know, call and you've got to move people around and be really systematic about it. And um, I'm currently had pulled down all my LinkedIn contacts and I've been doing all these different searches on my LinkedIn contacts and then reaching out to people to try to do some prospecting around speaking, particularly in my area, like meaning geographically. I'm like, I live in Boston. There's a zillion companies and schools and law firms and like associations that meet here. I'm like, why am I not, why am I like always applying to speak somewhere like in California? Yeah, like, why do you have to jump on a plane? Yeah, like I, the thing I do is like great for a lot of people. So that's been a discipline and that's an entirely group of people that was not on my CRM. So it's like, oh, that's so interesting. Like who was I paying attention to? So all right, we're coming to the end of this interview. And I could talk to you forever, Jeff. So I, I have a, my last sort of question, which is, let's say we are connecting here from now. We find ourselves in person. Um, I'm in Philly for a conference, let's say. And we are toasting all of your successes. I want to know, we, when we look back over the year, 
what are we celebrating for you? What are you looking forward to the most in the year ahead? That's such a tough question because this year, I'm in a year of transition. Just last year and this year have been very transitionary years for me. I mean, I got married. I had sold my company. Uh, My new role is very different than my prior role. I used to do everything in my own company. And now I have kind of, uh, to a certain extent, making my own role and um, really focusing away from social and more into leadership. So there's it's really tough to say what exactly I'm accomplishing or out to accomplish. And the things that I do want to accomplish, the the kind of the big goals I have are things where I haven't made as much progress and traction as I'd like to. And and you know how it is, right? Like you look at all the things that you didn't accomplish versus things that you do. And my wife is constantly beating me up about that. She's like, why, why do you do that? Um, but I guess if I had, if we were a year from now, we were toasting anything, the big thing I would want is the release of the lovable leader. That is the the biggest, most exciting project that I think I have going right now is to aggregate and pull together all of the knowledge I have on being a great leader and the things I've seen others do that that makes great leadership and all the things that you should watch out for, conflict resolution secrets, all of that sort of stuff. If I could have that book out into the world, I don't even care if it sells 10 copies. You know what I mean? Like I just want to know that I've I've done my best to put out great information into a world that can create better leaders. I, I want you to do that. And I want you to start speaking about it as a thing that you've, you're doing, not as a what if, because, you know, positive it, psychology, yeah. like yeah. Just picture it happening and picture the work you're going to put into making it happen. And, and actually related to that, I have a couple of free resources that I'm going to like mention right now for you, Jeff, but anyone listening can also feel free to grab them. I did a series of master classes. One was titled, Should I Write a Book? So it's got a lot of really good practices about how I, as a person who has a hard time sitting still, um, I think you would relate to that, Jeff. Like, how do you get the knowledge out of your head? And then another another one on book launch strategies. Um, I had 100 reviews on Amazon on my launch day and 150 worldwide a week later. So, and that's a year and a half ago, and it's now closing in on 200, uh, 200 reviews. So, um, so yes, you can go get that at robbysamuels.com forward slash masterclass. I'll send you the link when we get off of this show. Cool, love it. Last question for you, speaking of ways to connect. So how can people find you and follow your work? So my website is jeffgibbard.com, J-E-F-F-G-I-B-B-A-R-D.com. My website is from the, my agency that is, is from the future and that's ftf.agency. And then as far as connecting with me directly, my absolute favorite place on the internet is Twitter. Uh, so just find me at jgibbard. Um, don't connect with me on LinkedIn or Facebook. I mean, I guess you could, but like, make sure you're leaving like a really good uh, introductory email of why. Because I get so many people that I just leave in purgatory because I don't know why they're trying to connect with me. That's awesome. Uh, I will put all those links in the show notes at Robbie Samuels. Sorry, at ontheschmooze.com. Look at me. I'm, I'm so used to saying the other one. I will put all the links in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us. I, I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Jeff. Such a pleasure to speak with him and learn about his leadership journey. What is your key takeaway from our conversation? Something you put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share it resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 164. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources from today's show, as well as over 150 archived episodes on this Pinterest-inspired page. Reach out and let me know which were your favorite interviews. As I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, I'm on the hunt for my third 5K. That's because this past weekend, I ran my second ever 5K, and it was a fundraiser for suicide prevention. 
Did you know that there are four times as many suicides as homicides each year? And two times as many motor vehicle deaths? And lesbian and gay and bisexual youth are four times more likely to die by suicide than their straight peers? You can still donate, because every dollar makes a difference. Donate at bit.ly 5 Robby. That's B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash 5-K-R-O-B-B-I-E. That can all be lowercase. Thanks. I really appreciate your support and encouragement. If you enjoyed this episode with Jeff, please share with your friends and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's show. Remember, subscribing is always free. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I would love to read your review on Apple Podcasts. It's easy to find our page at itunes.ontheschmooze.com. Thank you in advance. And I look forward to connecting again next week when I'll be interviewing another talent professional about their untold stories of leadership and networking. We'll explore their career challenges, work-life balance, and how they built a strong professional network on their way to becoming a successful leader. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On the Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.